Now, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Hello there, this is Ian Anderson here. How are you? Good morning, good morning, good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good. Well, let's get right into this. Uh, brand new record, first new material in over 18 years, coming out on January 28th. The Z-Logy, available now for pre-order wherever music is sold. Welcome to the show, for the first time ever, Ian Anderson from Jets Hotel. Mr. Anderson, great to see you. Yes. Well, nice to see you, too. Um, and um, I'm just going to uh, mute the uh, telephone sitting next to me, just in case somebody <laughs> calls in. In case the Matrix calls in. In case yeah. the what? In, in case, case the Matrix, Matrix calls in. Have, have you ever seen the movie The Matrix? The main character. I'm, I'm, no, I'm not really a movie watcher, so it means nothing to me. Um, anyway, Keanu Reeves. He's Mr. He's Mr. Anderson. I see. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, and to I get into know. the Matrix, the phone ends. The phone rings. So you pick up the phone, you get pulled into the Matrix. Well, how, how utterly fascinating! <laughs> Remind me to delete Netflix from my account. Okay, fire away. First question: What do you got? Yeah, Mitch, go ahead. Well, uh, talk to me about putting together this album because it is the first material in 18 years. You can, of course, uh, go out as Jethro Tull and tour successfully and play all the stuff from Aqualong and Crest of the Nave and all these albums. Talk to me about the urge to say, you know what? I need to have something fresh and something current. Well, the um, the guys in the band who performed on this, you know, these are musicians who've been with me for an average of about 15 years, and they've done hundreds and hundreds of concerts as Jethro Tull performing live, but they've never actually been on an album simply called Jethro Tull. So I thought it would honour their long-standing commitment to make this album a a band Jethro Tull album and uh, that was my intention when I started work on it back in uh, on uh, what, at 9 a.m. on January the 1st of 2017 I started work writing and um, and uh, we recorded seven tracks I think fairly early on during the year I completed four of them later that year mm. and kept you know intending to come back to it but you know, with all the pressure of touring and the number of limited number of days between tours that were there for the band and me to have some kind of a home life, it um, it got it kept getting put off, and, and then of course the pandemic came along, which meant um, it was unwise for us to get together in the studio. And at the beginning of this year, I gave up hope that we would be able to record the last five songs which i'd written back in 2017 so i decided to record them myself and they were therefore rather more acoustic offerings and cool. um that's not necessarily a bad thing because in a way the contrast and the dynamic range of of the album is is probably a better end result it reminds me a little bit of the of the Aqualung album, which had a series of heavy rock songs, but then, you know, a bunch of quite light singer-songwriter acoustic pieces as well. When you say that you want to uh, get the, the new members, uh, you know, honour them by putting them on an album and stuff, do you then therefore write to their strength and write to what they're doing? Or do you say, okay, guys, you've got to somehow figure out how we sounded on Thick as a Brick and, and give me that Jethro Tull sound. Where where are you going musically with it? Well, I don't really ever have to tell them that. They are experienced and wise old birds, and they, um, <laughs> they understand that with classic 
material from certain periods of of the early days of Jethro Tull that they they have to they have to retain the key elements of those performances in terms of the musical arrangement. But of course, there's a lot of improvising goes on in Jethro Tull music, past, present, and doubtless future. So it, it, it gives them the opportunity to to put their own uh, fine detail into the the parts that they play. Right. And on this particular album, I think they they uh, they were given probably by end of February. I think I, I was able to give February 2017. I mean, I was able to give them the all the lyrics, all the chord sheets, make some simple demos that I could send them. So they were in, they, they had all the material to begin to prepare the uh, the music ready for the five days of rehearsal that we did in March, followed by four days of recording to do the first seven tracks. So it was, mm. you know, it was um, it was done that way in the, in the way I think it, it's always best to work if you can do that playing live in the studio rather than right. it becoming too artificial with um, performing in bits and stitching it all together later. I mean, it's, it's satisfying to be able to perform live and hear, hear all the key elements. I mean, I, you know, I sang along and played flute in the, um, in the recording from a, another booth, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, for practical reasons, there's always a bit really of isolation walls and you tend to do it again, you know, to do the master, which I did in isolation uh, as far as my, my flute and vocals or a bit of acoustic guitar was concerned but you know working working as much as possible to make it feel live is to me i think an important part of of making a record I mean, our right, guitar, yeah. guitarist florian he, he actually played those guitar solos live in the studio mm-hmm. as part of the the recording you know with everybody wow. else there he, they weren't overdubbed later he played his solos live yeah, and it's a bit of a lost art form these days because everybody's just doing the overdubs and, you know, send the drum session to one guitarist and then the right. bass player puts it off and they're all in different studios. But the fact that you yeah, did well, it all we, together. We, we've done our share of that. I mean, Bob Ezrin told me that he'd uh, recorded an entire Pink Floyd album that way back in the days of recording The Wall. It was He said that, that there was never more than one member of the band in the studio at any one time. He may have been exaggerating, but that's what he told me. And um, I can remember call, recording locomotive breath on the Aqualung album. We we tried playing it together. It just wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't clicking. It didn't. Just didn't gel. Hmm. So I went out and played um, hi hat for four minutes. I was a hi hat and a bass drum. I think I played <laughs> in the studio. Was right Martin Lang pro- pro- producing? Jeez. <laughs> no, no, I, I was producing. But I, I went out and did that, and then uh, and then I then I borrowed Martin Barr's electric guitar right. and um, and played the, the basic rhythm part and some of the solo lines and then and then um, and then uh, Clyde Bunker the drummer went out and played cymbals and some tom-toms and uh, John Evans added some piano so it, that, that was constructed in a very artificial way mm-hmm. and yet oddly the, the end result does <clears throat> sound like a band playing together it's um, it, it worked but you know, it wasn't it wasn't the way I intended to record the song. It just had to be done that way because we somehow weren't getting the feel, the metronomic clickety clack sort of um, mechanical nature of the song wasn't really coming when we tried to play it live, and right. um, so uh, it had to be done another way. So the way you record it this way, is it more for the sense of catching a vibe and making sure that that vibe gets on the record? 
Or do you look at it at down the road like, we need to record stuff that we'll be able to play live. So if we can't play it live here, well, then there's no purpose. So is it is it with the live show in mind or is it with vibe in mind? Well, it's, it's definitely both of those things. And okay. um, I think to record music in a way that you're confident when you're doing it, that you can recreate this at any time, anywhere, as long as you've got your instruments with you, that's, that is reassuring. But um, there is another factor apart from the uh, the vibe and the being able to replicate it live that uh, comes to mind, which is um, not wasting time. Right. <laughs> it's to be right. economic with time. And so when you actually get in the studio and you play it, you know, that we could do seven songs with five days rehearsal and four days of recording, you know, that's 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 getting a result pretty quickly. So um, that, that was certainly another part of it. I, I, I like to work quickly. I... I I have always worked from the days of analog tape through to the, you know, the latest um, um, Pro Tools updated versions of the recording software I use, you know, for digital recording today. I, I work with what's referred to as destructive recording techniques. Mm -hmm. In other words, when I, um, when I record something and I want to replace a bit of it, I don't do another track and then compile it later. I, I destroy, I delete the section that I'm that I'm wow. recording over because I don't want to have to make choices. You know, I, I know right. full well if I've sung the wrong word or it's a bit out of tune or <laughs> the diction's not great or the flute playing has got a mistake in it or something, I, I, mm -hmm. I instantly hear it. There's no point in keeping it and fiddling with it later. I go back in there and bang, you know, replace it with something else. So that's called destructive recording. I, I, I don't keep, I don't keep the rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> Get rid yeah, of it yeah. forever. But, it but where's gone. your deluxe it, box it, it set? Back. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that, that to me is, is making decisions as I go. And I yeah. like to do that. I, I really don't like to have to compile um, elements of one take and another take. And, and very rarely do I, do I, use that way of recording something you know mm -hmm. sometimes in the early stages of recording it's good as a reference point but when you come to be doing it for real and you're looking for that that uh, best performance that master there's just no point in keeping the rubbish get right. rid of it do we overthink music now i've no idea uh, i'm i don't know if you do i i i certainly could be well accused of uh of going into uh, too much um, detail and perhaps to um, consider things perhaps in too much of an, an intellectual point of view, but that, that I find that enjoyable. You know, I, I like to have a, a reason to do something and to do it in a certain way. So I tend to think um, in a quite a detailed way about what I'm doing, but mm -hmm. arguably it, um, it's not the way other people will listen to music they listen in a more immediate here and now sense. And I, I think that's appropriate that they, they do that. And I, I had second thoughts about giving all the information about the recording process and, and, and the, the, um, the background to writing the songs and the biblical references that I had sitting in the periphery of my, my view when I was working on the lyrics that um you know, maybe it's best not to share that with people. Maybe just let them hear the end result and think for themselves as to what it might mean or not mean. 
But I know there are some fans who really do want to have the detail. They do want to know the how did this come about? What was the process of writing songs? Is it a concept album? Is it a you know um, something that um, has more of a as I say more of an intellectual standpoint than than I I decided well. I discussed it actually with the record company whether or not we should include all of that in the uh, in the artwork booklet and or just leave it out and um, mm-hmm. they felt no let's put it in because um, it's part of the process of making the record and some people um, enjoy finding that out most right. however I don't think they really care but that's mm-hmm. fine. To go back to your point on the destructive recording techniques, you're the second artist that's ever told me about that. I interviewed Brian Adams, and we were talking about working with Mutt Lang on the Waking Up the Neighbors album, and he told me that they just couldn't get, they couldn't figure out this entire, like, verse section. And Mutt was like, okay, well, hold on a second. And he went in, and he completely cleared off all the guitars, all the bass, all the keyboards, all the vocals, just left the drum track on there. And Brian was like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, we didn't like it, so let's write something new. And I thought that was really interesting because a lot of artists are just so precious with what they record and what they write. And the fact that you just go in and just completely delete it, erase it, I mean, that says a lot about how confident you are. Well, it's, it's again, it's an expedient. It's so much quicker to do because if you, you know, at the end of three hours, you've got a master vocal and a master flute, perhaps from, you know, concentrated effort, then... Um, it's done. It's 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 all finished. You know, I I hate to come back on another day and decide to replace something or to do it again. You know, I, I really like to try and get to where I'm headed as fast as I possibly can. Yeah. I, I've always liked mm-hmm. to work fast, it, both in the writing process, the arranging process, the recording process. I I like to uh, I like to see an end result. Um, and I, I really I'm very uncomfortable if I spend more than three or four hours. In terms of studio work, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't have the energy for prolonged sessions, and I don't really like to work late at night. And when it comes to writing music and arranging music, I, I'm, I'm an early riser. I usually, I'm usually, I'm usually in the office by six thirty, and I do certain amount of office work for a couple of hours, take a break, then come back to be perhaps doing more creative stuff if I'm writing new material um take a break at lunchtime go back and maybe refine it a bit in the afternoon and hopefully you know after a couple of days i i've got a complete song with lyrics and an arrangement and and that is about as much time as i want to spend on on that process because i i the gratification comes from achieving an an end result within a tangible period of time I, I don't. I don't like to. Uh, I don't like to drag it out. And so, a lot of people have imagined that it's taken me um, four years of, of noodling to get to finalizing <laughs> a new album. But the total right. number of hours spent on on writing and recording is about the same as it always has been. Right. But well, look, I mean, you even said you went into the studio and just recorded a hi-hat and a kick drum at a time and layered some sounds on. So you did some experimentation in the studio when it came to recording. Well, back in the early days of analog recording, it, it, everything was experimentation. You know, it right. was, um, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we didn't have the methodology 
when uh, George Martin started working with a couple of two-track ferrographs in Abbey Road Studios and then went on to record uh, um, four-track, which is what they did um, in their early recordings, it was it was the first use of multi-tracking and you could bounce tracks down and create another free track to do something else with but you know it was a very limiting thing and you had to make decisions as you went that, that that's how george martin worked you know he only had the facilities of four track recording he had to make decisions about the the balance between bass and drums and mm-hmm. and that was forever fixed because to free up another track for vocals you had to uh, bounce tracks together and, and that was it it done and dusted, you know, there was no going back. So when when George was doing that stuff and then it went on to eight track recording and 16 track recording and 24 track recording and 48 track recording, it it, it, it was a, a revolutionary period of time that, um, you know, yeah. first, first recordings we ever made um, in a studio were actually four track but but the first Jethro Tull album was an eight track album and um we went on to uh, within i suppose three or four years uh, we had seen the advent of 24 track recording and then people would often gang up two machines so you had 48 tracks and the machines were running in in sync together then um that was an endless possibility yeah, let me just, um, but sorry. but I don't think it necessarily was a good thing because in a way, recording on sixteen track, for example, again you had to make some decisions. You had to make some some pretty firm uh, commitments to what you were doing, and yeah, it um, that, that that was part of the evolution of analog recording. When digital technology came along, it was also limited to a number of tracks. These days, as long as you've got um, fast enough processing speed on your computer and a big enough hard disk well you know the um you know you, you need a lot of ram in order to uh, <laughs> indulge yourself but you know you can, you can record a hundred terabytes tracks. easily yeah. you can put it on a hundred <laughs> tracks if you wanted to um let me just uh, ask you real quick about the early days of the band you and terry ellis produced pretty much the the a lot of the sort of early records Talk to me about uh, not handing the reins completely over to Terry and being part of it. And how did you get the record company to allow the band member to be the producer? And and why was it important to have your input and not just sort of turn the project over and say, okay, Terry, you do what you do. We do what we do. Um, well, t- you know, I think, I think we, we, we have to remember that Terry Ellis was the band's manager. He's true. He is listed as a producer on a couple of early records because he sometimes popped in the studio to see how things were going on and made a few comments or what he thought were helpful suggestions. And, um, mm. th- but that's, that's, I think he misunderstood the term as to what a producer does. I think he was thinking more in terms of producer being like a movie producer, the person who is organizing things and f- perhaps funding it in the case of the record company, picking up the tab for studio recording, etc. But in terms of the, the technicalities of being a record producer, um, that's a much more creative role. And first of all, you've got to have a pretty good musical brain uh, to be a record producer. And you've also got to have a good technical understanding of the recording process. And I was in the studio all the time learning that side of things as I went along. Um, so I was uh, 
you know, I wasn't engineering the albums back then. We, we worked with we worked with a studio engineer, but um, you know, I was learning as much as I could about recording technology and how to how to get the end result that um, right. we were trying to find. So um, that was that was the role. Terry, on the other hand, being the band's manager, you know, was um, a person who. Um, gave me a lot of support and encouragement right. and there was never really any question about um about the record company because his role as a manager then became as chrysalis records got formed from 1969 onwards uh, we were effectively the first band to be signed to the new chrysalis record label that um you know i i had all the freedom that i wanted and never really tried to um influence the way the records were going and you know if they if the records were getting made and selling lots of copies why would you want to interfere right uh, so, <laughs> let, um, me, let me ask you about that why not bring in a set of ears why not bring in a bob richards i mean a jack richardson or a bob ezrin or a roy thomas baker why not have that extra set of ears well, we, 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 we did try that a few times. Right. A couple of times at my suggestion. In fact, I, I sat down for a meeting. I think it was after the Aqualung album. I was about to start work on Thick as a Brick, and I had a meeting with, uh, um, um, uh, with uh, well, I, I sat down, first of all, to talk to our managers about the, 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 the opportunities that that, um, that might exist if we were to work with a record producer, might that sort of open horizons and free me to some extent from being in the studio all the time. I could just then be a musician, an arranger, a songwriter, instead of taking on the, the full mantle of, uh, of everything. But um, they, they suggested that I go and talk to, to George Martin. And uh, I sat down with George Martin, and we'd already sent him a copy of the Aqualung album, and um, and he asked me the question, "Well, why do you want to have a producer?" And I said, "Well, I suppose because of you know someone with objectivity who can bring bring another creative standpoint to everything, and um, you know, and um, f find a way to make the music happen that perhaps I couldn't do on my own." And he said, "Well, how many how many copies of Aqualung have you sold, and and uh, how did you make the record, and blah 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 blah." And at the end of it, he said, "Look, he said, if I were you, I would just carry on doing what you're doing because I don't think you really need to have a producer. You know, it's just that you perhaps feel a little insecure." He said, "But the end result is such that you know why why bother?" And right. um, and I took that away with me and thought, "Yes, I think he's probably right." As uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if we managed to. Um, shift a lot of records and please a lot of people, then uh, maybe I should carry on working yeah. that way. And I, I then embarked upon Thick as a Brick, which I think was possibly a moment when the record company did have doubts that, that I um, retained all of my youthful marbles and that I wasn't embarked on some suicide mission in uh, in uh, professional terms. Uh, they, they didn't really like the record, uh, the, the album cover, the album artwork, and that bothered them a bit as well but you know they ultimately they said okay if that's what you want to do then we'll do it and yeah. um of course the record was uh you know it was surprisingly given a, it was a, a a high level of parody on the concept album genre right. and having a 16 page uh, newspaper as a an album cover <laughs> was a bit revolutionary and 
but you know it all it all worked and um yeah. at the end of it all it was one of those occasions when um they scratched their heads a bit and thought well yeah he really does know what he's doing right but yeah you know, it was uh, it was just a, a a commitment there are other albums where i i le- i left it to either terry or record company artwork people to come up with with album artwork and um on two occasions i've worked with other producers who um um well we had somebody come in at the beginning of recording um the uh, broadsword and the beast album right. that was suggested and uh, he lasted a week before <laughs> he was removed and dispatched back to los angeles along with his uh, drug dealer and cocaine stash nice um, so he, he 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 wasn't a person that we could get on with or work with because um you know we we don't do drugs we don't we're not right. rock and roll in that way we never have have ha- enjoyed being around that scenario and um, you know the um the um the, the atmosphere that was created in the studio was not not conducive to making a record so he was he was sent home and um because we had a bunch of stuff and i thought well i don't want to give up on the idea of having a a record producer i i looked in the yellow pages on you know under r for record producer and uh, a name popped out at me from the yellow pages which was uh, paul samuel smith whose name i recognized from being the bass player with the yardbirds but also having produced some uh, stuff for cat stevens whose work i admired so i called the number in the yellow pages and paul samuel smith said hello and I don't think he was particularly familiar with Jethro Tull, but we sent him a bunch of demos that we'd made and the and the uh, some of the work that we had been doing with the previous producer, and um, and he was able to start fairly soon. So we 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 got him into uh, he, he he worked on some of the songs while we were still recording them, but mostly by the time he he was sitting in that seat, you know, the, most of the work was done. He was more involved in the mixing. And I was happy to let him and our engineer, Robin Black, sit together and and essentially mix the album with, with, little, with little input from me. Um, and, um, you know, that was, that, that was okay. So it wasn't one of our most successful albums in the USA by any means, but it was very successful in Europe and right. in Germany. It was the biggest selling Jethro Tull record ever. So it, wow. it, um, it did okay. And I, I also worked with another a pop producer when the record company wanted to re-record a song that I did on Songs from the Wood as a Christmas single. They wanted to try and make it a little bit more sugary, a bit more, a bit more radio friendly and, um, so I said, well, okay, I'll give it a go. And they wheeled in a, a pop record producer who we worked with. The band didn't get on with him at all. And I said, look, you've got to do your best to do what he says. You know, we, we, we should try to let him have that authority and um, see what expertise he can bring to bear. So they gritted their teeth and did what he told them to do. And the end result, I don't think any of us particularly liked. So I sent to the record company, look, what I want you to do is to play the other guy's mix and play my album mix of the song. Really quite a different arrangement too. Mm-hmm. I said, play it to the guys in the mailroom. Play it to the cleaning lady. 
this is not a decision for A and R or the you know the the bosses of the record company. Play it to real people who just see what their reaction is. So they agreed to do that, and then they they phoned me and said, um, "Right, well, we're going to go with your original version <laughs> because of course. Of course. people thought people, yeah. for whatever reason, you know, found it more engaging than the uh, than the the other version, which um, never actually." No one ever heard that other version until recently. I think I um, I had uh, agreed the record company could um, yeah. release that alternative version, which still existed. Um, and I think it just goes to show. I mean, at the end of the day, sometimes the 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 gatekeeper should just let the talent do what the talent does best, and that's be the talent. Yeah, well, it depends. It depends on who it is. You know, some people have a, a method of working and take it seriously and show up for work every day at the right time and don't need to be assisted out of bed or into the studio or fed with with you know drugs, booze, and um, saucy ladies. They they can be relied upon to get on with the job and complete it. You know, to schedule. And and I am one of those. Therefore, the record company would find it pretty easy to work with me as indeed the record companies released uh, the zealot gene they they find it um, i'm sure they they find me rather unusual in, in as much as uh, <laughs> i can i can hold a conversation right. in something approximating to english grammar and i can get the job done and do what i say i'm going to do and and um, they they seem to appreciate they're dealing directly with me not with a manager or right. or a record producer or somebody totally. else that's um, somewhere between the artist and the record company they're, they're dealing directly with me I, I don't i don't i mean i don't have a lawyer right I've, I've i have i have read and signed enough record contracts in my time i do not need to engage the services of a lawyer in order to yeah to uh, negotiate and finally sign uh, and i know the, what's going um, on the long yeah. the long the long version copy of a record contract the stuff i've been doing for 50 odd years. Yeah. I should know how you, to do it by you now. You know the definition of recoupment. So um, let me ask you this. We got, we, we got a little bit more time and we're going to run out. But as a Canadian uh, back in the 80s, you worked with Honeymoon Suite on a song called All Along You Knew, which was, yeah. which I love. It, it's, it's so, so fun. And your part is what makes the song. How did that combination come together that you sort of a Canadian pop band and, and Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson combined to create a fantastic song. Well, it's not the only Canadian band. I also played on a track with by Men Without Hats. Yes, on the Pop, um, pop, so, um, pop Goes the World album. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's a song called "On Tuesday." Right. And um, but in in the case of uh, in the case of the uh, the honeymoon suite, they they were uh, they were. I think they were they were on the same uh, agency roster as we were, and so it was suggested they might be a, a support act for Jethro Tull on a tour of North America. So that's how we got to know them. And then they asked me if I would play on a track, so I said yes, and I did it, and um, that was the end of it. Um, I mean, they probably sent you know a rough mix of a track, and I recorded my bit in the studio and sent it back to them these days i i um i barely have to get out of bed because in the digital age i can sit at my office desk and record you know my contribution to somebody else's record we transfer but it um over. you know that with the with the uh, with men without hats it was because uh, i think the 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 main man ivan had heard somewhere on the grapevine that uh, i was uh, how much i had enjoyed th their song uh, the safety dance when it was uh, mm -hmm. 
aired on British television as a video, and I find it a very refreshing sort of uh, fun piece of work that, you know, it's almost kind of a post-hippie extravaganza as a video, and it was uh, in sharp contrast to the the synth pop of the time, although his sensitivity for working with um, electro pop and traditional ideas uh, and carefully thought through vocals and lyrics, you know, it was, uh, it was a, a good, a good balance. Uh, you know, as a, sometimes there are pop songs I've played on, I've played on jazz records, I've played on classical affiliations with people. I've done all sorts of things and I'm quite, quite content to do, to, to contribute to somebody's work if it's different to what I do. It's more of a challenge, you know, if you're playing right. on somebody else's record to try and get inside their head and understand their music because it's not the music I do. It's not my not my happy hunting ground in terms of uh, musical style or right. or details. So it's it's a good challenge to to work with other people. Ne- next week I have to work with a symphony orchestra and a choir in the Vatican Christmas concerts in oh, Rome. Wow. So um, that'll be fun. You know, I shall be well. It might be fun, but I should be well. I will be well outside of my comfort zone. But it is a challenge. It'll be a challenge also not to contract COVID while I'm there. But I shall do my best. <laughs> anyway, it'd be very nice to talk to you guys, and thanks for your support and uh, interest in the new record. And uh, have a merry Christmas um, and uh, live to prosper in the new year. Yes, right back absolutely. Brand new record, January twenty eighth. You can pre order it now. Thanks a lot. It was so great to chat. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Later. Bye. All right, great.